Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us for today. But here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Foyt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room, or watching online, live, or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey, and wherever you are in your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. I had been asked to lead a six-week mission trip for the summer, something I had zero interest in doing. Uh, Zero. Uh, Less than zero, actually, which created a bit of conflict in my spirit because something in my spirit was telling me to say yes, but I didn't want to say yes. I'd been on a mission trip before, and though the experience wasn't horrible, it certainly had some good moments, uh, but it wasn't great either, and I decided long ago that I was done with missions. I was 24. I had a full-time job that I knew wouldn't let me off for six weeks. Uh, Besides that, there was rent and other bills that had to be paid. I was responsible for worship at my church, and there was nobody to fill in for me for six weeks. And I was in my first serious relationship. Even if I wanted to be apart for six weeks, I knew she wouldn't feel the same way. I I felt like I was finally just getting into my groove as an adult. I didn't need or want this interruption. I made the mistake of saying I'd pray about it just to get the guy off my back. And then I did. And while I was at it, I laid out 15 hurdles that God had to jump over for me to do this really stupid thing. They weren't hurdles in my mind. They were roadblocks. But I thought hurdles sounded a little more spiritual and (laughs) open-minded. It really didn't matter because I knew that God would never jump through my hoops, so to speak. So I was safe. I'd seem spiritual enough to pray about 
about it. I'd go through the motions, but in the end, I'd stay home. I knew with absolute certainty that God wouldn't jump every single one of them. Because the last one was that he had to change my heart. And I knew there was no way in H-E double hockey sticks that that would happen. You can probably already tell what happened. <laughs> one by one, the hurdles, I, I, I just watched the hurdles fall. My job said yes. It was a union job with union rules. The answer should have been no. But it was yes. Enough money came in to cover all of my trip expenses and my household bills. Someone even moved into my apartment for the six weeks, saving me some rent. My girlfriend, completely stressed out about me leaving for six weeks and sabotaged the relationship, making me ungirlfriended. Which was good in the long run because I met Didi eight months later. That would have been awkward. <laughs> now get this. This is no lie. I promise you that this is true. God shut down my church. Let that sink in. He closed a church, closed the doors permanently. Guess I didn't have to worry about getting someone to lead worship while I was gone. <laughs> and then it happened. He shattered the last roadblock. He changed my heart. Uh, by the time I'd watched God tackle 14 hurdles, it was clear that there was something going on. But dag nabbit, now I wanted to go on a stupid mission trip. <laughs> and I had a fantastic summer. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I enjoyed every moment of it. And it set me up for many, many, many more mission trips in the years to come. Why is it that we, we who say we trust God actually resist the God we, tr we trust. It's baffling, really. I know I'm not alone. In fact, since we're here in church and we shouldn't lie, let's just be honest, show of hands, uh, even those of you online, raise your hands, Alexa can see you, and she'll let me know whether or not you raised your hand. Show of hands, how many of you who are Christians would say that at some point in your life, maybe even right now in this moment, you've had an internal battle with God and you found yourself resisting the God that you say you trust? See, that's what I thought. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> For those of you watching who are not followers of Christ, maybe even skeptical of following Christ, or you used to follow Christ, this is us just having a genuinely authentic moment. We might look like we have it all together, at least on Sundays, but we don't. We have a hard time actually doing the very thing that we want to do. Trust God. We are messy people just tr trying to let God clean up our messes and fighting him almost every step of the way. You know, some of you are in the middle of an internal battle with God right now. You know you should forgive, but it's so hard to forgive. You know you should get out of that relationship, but there's something about that relationship that is hard to let go of. You know you should stop doing that thing, but you kind of like doing that thing. You know you should have that hard conversation, but you hate hard conversations. You know you shouldn't spend money that way. You should be more generous, but you know, you know. Your heart tells you what's right. Your conscience speaks truth to your heart. If you read the Bible, it tells you what's right. You're trying to be a good Jesus follower, but you, you just, it doesn't make 
any sense, especially for a person who is not a Christian. We find ourselves resisting the God we say we trust. Now, if you are a Christian or a church person, we have a word for this. It's called hypocrisy. That we don't actually walk our talk sometimes. We own that. But please give us a little bit of slack. Cut us. Give us a little bit of mercy. It's very difficult to surrender your life to a God you've never seen. Very difficult to surrender your life to a God who speaks through your conscience or speaks through ancient literature and speaks to your heart. As Andy Stanley, the pastor who gave us the framework for this series says, it's very difficult to basically write the blank check of your life to a God you've never seen. But this is the ongoing struggle that we all have. Even if you aren't a Christian or a religious person, you understand this because you know what happens in your own conscience. You too have a hard time staying true to whatever it is you believe. In the weeks leading up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, there were three people whose lives intersected with Jesus' life. And each of these three characters had their own agenda. An agenda that put them at odds with God and specifically with Jesus. And as we're going to see in this series, there's a little bit of them in all of us. But the really interesting thing we're going to see is that their stories of resistance actually illustrate the futility of resisting God. If you've been a Christ follower for long, then you already know that the Bible is filled with stories that illustrate the futility of resisting God. But even more than that, your story of resistance is also an illustration of the futility of resisting God. And for those of us who follow Christ, we know it doesn't make sense to resist the God we say we trust. We know that in the end, our resistance will only serve as an illustration of what not to do for our children and grandchildren or anyone else watching our lives. We know that our resistance makes us the poster children of the futility of the self-destructive nature of resisting God, and yet we do it all the time. But we want to do better. So to that end, the first character that we're going to explore the life of is a guy named Joseph Caiaphas. If you grew up in church, you simply know him as Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest during the time of Jesus. He was the most influential person in Jerusalem, Judea, and what we would consider to be ancient Israel. He was the guy. He was the person that communicated with Pilate or whoever was the leader in the Roman garrison at the time, whatever point he was in leadership. Even more significant than that, Caiaphas was part of a family. Now, it's really hard for us to understand the significance of this. Uh, Caiaphas was part of the family that controlled the temple. He controlled the politics, the religion, and the power of the temple for 40 years years because his father-in-law was a high priest. Five of his brothers-in-law were high priests. They were a political and religious dynasty. They had all the power. They had all of the influence. They had extraordinary wealth. There were amazing perks that came from being at the epicenter of the Jewish religion in the first century. Jews all over the world paid what was called the temple tax. And the equivalent of millions and millions and millions of dollars flowed into this 32-acre piece of real estate known as the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. 
everybody paid the temple tax, not just the people who lived in the Jerusalem area. In fact, so much money poured into the temple through the temple tax that there were Roman provinces all around the empire of Rome where the governors of those areas tried to pass laws against the Jews paying this temple tax because so much money was flowing from these surrounding provinces into Judea, into the city of Jerusalem. Caiaphas not only had extraordinary power, but he had extraordinary influence because of his access to extraordinary wealth. Everything was just great for Caiaphas, the high priest, until an ordinary carpenter turned rabbi stepped into the pages of history. We know him as Jesus Josephson. Now, most of you would think of Jesus' last name as what? As what? Yes. Uh, That's not a last name. It's actually a title. It came from the Old Testament and simply meant that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah or the Christ. So Christ isn't his last name, even though people shout it all over the world when they hit their thumb with a hammer. (laughs) His last name was actually Josephson because he was the son of Joseph. Actually, they would have called him Jesus Bar Joseph, but that essentially translates to Jesus Josephson. Uh, You see how it works. I would be Christopher Michelson in the first century. Now, that's all bonus material, by the way. It won't be on the test. So Caiaphas has all of this power and all of this influence and all of this wealth. His family controls basically everything. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And the problem with Jesus was the crowds. It wasn't the teaching. People taught all kinds of crazy things. It was the crowds. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds of people. Many of us know the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 from growing up in church. There were 5,000 men. Some people have said Jesus actually fed 10,000 or more. Some say that's an exaggeration, that there were only 5,000 or 2,000. We don't know. And it doesn't really matter. It was a huge crowd. Everywhere Jesus went, there were at least hundreds and often thousands of people. And this was a threat to Rome. This was a threat to the Jewish system led by Caiaphas. Because crowds meant the possibility of insurrection. Crowds meant division. Uh, Crowds potentially meant civil war. Crowds meant that things might get out of control quickly if if a crowd suddenly turned on the Jewish leaders or on the Roman garrison. So the Romans were concerned about the crowd and Caiaphas and his people were concerned about the crowd. But everywhere Jesus went, he drew crowds and crowds of people. And Caiaphas and his peeps never drew a crowd, except on festival days. And Caiaphas knew that those crowds weren't really there to see or hear them. They were just simply there because it was a festival and everyone loves a party. Another problem for Caiaphas was that when Jesus spoke, and in whatever Jesus did, he spoke with, he acted with exceptional authority. People were amazed by his authority. Uh, Remember the story of Jesus going into the temple and turning over all the tables and chasing off all of the goats and sheep and letting the doves go, kind of wreaking havoc there with the money changers? When the religious leaders sent by Caiaphas approached Jesus, they didn't say, what do you think you're doing? Instead, they asked the question that they knew they needed to ask. 
They asked, who do you think you are? Because Jesus acted and spoke with such authority. Which brings us to another problem for Jesus, with Jesus. He was extremely critical of the religious leaders. Now, if you want to get a picture of this, later on you can read Matthew chapter 23. It is a Jesus rant. Jesus goes on and on with no respect for the temple leaders because of the corruption that had happened inside the temple system by the time he showed up in history. Matthew 23 is aimed directly at Caiaphas and the other religious leaders. And at the end, he puts an exclamation point on his rant when he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? He basically looks at these religious people, these religious leaders who got up every day trying to be good. They were the, the people who were responsible for leading the people who oversaw the sacrificing of animals so that they could find atonement for their sin. They, the best people in the city. And Jesus says, you are going to hell. So it, it's no wonder why Caiaphas had a little problem with Jesus. His authority, the crowds, and his criticism of everybody that Caiaphas worked with. It's no surprise that Caiaphas was more than a little concerned that Jesus threatened the peace and the people responsible for keeping the peace. You can see this struggle build through the Gospels. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until the final straw. And interestingly enough, the final straw wasn't something that Jesus said. It was something that he did. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't a confrontation. It was an act of compassion. Jesus raised someone from the dead. And it wasn't just anyone. He raised a very famous citizen of Bethany from the dead. Pastor John talked about him last week. Uh, Jesus raised who? Lazarus. He was the final straw. This was the miracle of miracles performed by Jesus. It was amazingly impossible, not only because Lazarus had died, but because he had been buried. The people of Bethany had been to the funeral and the next thing they know, Lazarus is walking around acting like nothing's happened. <laughs> this was worse than anyone could imagine. And the crowds just grew larger. And Caiaphas and all of his cronies realized that their strategy was failing. Up to this point, they had been trying to discredit Jesus publicly. That's why you see them throughout the four Gospels asking all these trick questions. And every time they think they've got him cornered into, in a no way Jesus can come out of this uh, now situation, Jesus comes back with a snappy answer and they just look stupid and the crowds go wild. The whole point of these questions was to make Jesus look stupid. They wanted to divide him from the crowds because once Jesus lost the crowds, it would, he would no longer be a threat to the peace that they'd established with Rome. But their plan just kept backfiring. In fact, it just kept getting worse. John the disciple was an eyewitness to all of this. He writes this in John chapter 12, which if you did your homework last week, you've just read. Verse 17, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So the, the people, this crowd of people actually watched the miracle, and they won't keep their mouths shut. 
They just keep telling more and more people about this sign, which just meant that more and more people went to check out Jesus. And the religious leaders of the temple are just throwing up their hands, all exasperated that their plan keeps failing, wondering where all of this is headed. How is this going to end? Clearly their strategy to discredit Jesus with the people by asking him tricky no-win questions is an abject failure. Leading them to this moment. Verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Look, everyone has gone after him. The NIV says, the whole world has gone after him. What's well, really funny, if you read ahead, fast forward past the Gospels, past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us what happened in the church after Jesus was raised from the dead. It was written by Luke, uh, who investigated all of these things. And Luke tells us that many, many priests and Pharisees later became followers of Jesus. That's how John has the inside track to all of this information. Later on, when John and Luke were investigating, some of these priests turned Jesus followers said, John, you won't believe what happened in this, this meeting. We were so frustrated. No matter what we did, no matter what we said or planned, Jesus made us look like fools over and over. But that's later on. Right now, Jesus is public enemy number one. And so John writes all of this in his gospel. Finally, at one point in these meetings, we said, look, the whole world has gone after him. Which is kind of funny, really, because little did they know that a third of the world, way beyond their little world, a third of the world's population would declare that Jesus is somebody special. A third, almost a third of the world's population declares that Jesus is Lord, and they had no idea how right they would be. So immediately following the miracle of Lazarus, this conversation begins to shift. John records the conversation a chapter earlier in John chapter 11, verse 47. There he writes, then, now this is right after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, the dust hasn't settled on, from the tomb yet. Uh, then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. Now we have three groups here. There's a little crossover, but these three groups are the leading priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And together, these three groups were called the Sanhedrin, or High Council, as we see here in the New Living Translation. This is an incredibly significant moment. You see, these three groups didn't get along. They didn't agree on their theology. The Sadducees, who were a part of this group, didn't believe that there was a, such a thing as a resurrection. The Pharisees thought there was. They didn't agree on anything politically. They had different ideas about how to get along with Rome. Their different agendas kept them at odds with each other most of the time. It would be like the House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, coming together with a Supreme Court and finding a place of agreement with each other. That's how significant this moment is. That's how big a threat they all saw Jesus to be. So in this meeting that John found out about later, they came together and said, what are we going to do? They asked each other. Like, what are we accomplishing? No matter what we do, the crowds just keep getting bigger and bigger. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, as if they've been letting him up to this point, 
soon everyone will believe in him. To which we say, yeah, that's the point. (laughs) But to them, then what? Because they knew. Deep down in their hearts, buried beneath all of the junk, they knew that they should be paying attention to all of this. In their heart of hearts, they knew that to resist Jesus was to resist God. But, and this is where we should pay attention, but there was something so important to them that to follow Jesus, to embrace this carpenter-turned-rabbi who claimed to be the Savior of the world, to follow Jesus meant that they would have to give up something else that was extremely important to them. Their power, their popularity, popularity, and in this case, their wealth. They knew what they needed to do, but it was just going to cost too much. They knew how they should respond, but the price was too high. We know from John that many of these guys knew the right thing to do. They believed, but they kept silent. The cost was just too high. They continue soon Everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Like If we don't do something, we will lose everything that is important to us. That's the point. When you finally decide to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. When even as a Christian, when something comes up to you that is more important than your relationship with God, every time you decide to put Jesus first, it is going to cost you something. This is why so many of us resist church for so long. I know I'm a pastor, so that I, this will hurt my credibility here, but I haven't always been a pastor. I remember what weekends used to look like. One of the really unimportant and the big picture reasons we resist church is because we have to give up Sunday mornings. It's the one morning. But then our wives want to go, our children want to go, and our children want their moms to go, and then here you are. That's what it was like when I was a kid. Uh, We joked that mom and dad got so tired of getting up to put us on the church bus that they ended up going themselves just so they could sleep in a little longer. (laughs) And once you get to church, they're going to want your money. And then they're going to want you to volunteer, and on and on. I just don't want to be part of it. I get it. But choosing to follow Jesus is going to cost you something. Or you're not following Jesus. If you are single, in our culture, choosing to follow Jesus is going to cost you something. It's going to narrow the field of available mates. It's probably going to take longer for you to get that ring on your finger. For those of you in challenging marriages, choosing to follow Jesus means that keeping that ring on your finger when you'd really like to take it off. Choosing to follow Jesus in school will cost you something. Choosing to follow Jesus with your business will cost you something. Choosing to follow Jesus with your finances will cost you something. You know, even choosing to follow Jesus with your fears and anxieties will cost you something. The price is high to follow Jesus. And that creates this internal tension, doesn't it? What do we do with Jesus? The whole world has gone after him. He raised a man from the dead. In my mind, that's the first cue. (laughs) If someone can bring a dead person back to life, that's worth investigating. Worth getting in line to follow. 
But their lives as they knew them had become so important to them that they couldn't bear the thought of giving it up. They just couldn't do it. And then we meet Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, who spoke up and said, now picture this. There are around 70 men with competing agendas and ideas about what to do. And they're arguing and debating. There's all this commotion. And finally, Caiaphas quiets them down. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. None of you know what you're talking about. You don't get it. You don't see the big picture like I do. You know nothing. All of you rich and powerful and influential men don't realize, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Forget trying to separate him from the crowd. Forget trying to trip him up. It would be better for the people. It would be better for the people, if the, if, for the whole nation, if one man dies. It's not about us. Not about us, but it's for the people. It's all about the people. It's not complicated men. If the whole nation is saved at the cost of one guy, then we are all better off. The whole nation. And then John adds this. Now remember, he's writing his gospel as an old man. It's at the end of his life, about 60 years after the fact, and after all of these conversations with former Pharisees, he's had time to gain perspective. He says, he, that's Caiaphas, did not say this on his own. As high priest at the time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all of the children of God scattered around the world. I can picture the smile on John's face as he remembered Little did they know that they were playing right into God's hands. One man did die, but not only for their nation, for the whole world through all of time. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. So they plotted and planned, waiting for just the right moment, planning to crucify Jesus and put an end to this crazy Jesus movement, little knowing that even as they resisted him, they participated in the will of God. As they resisted, as they, resisted they actually facilitated the will of God. Because in the end, they only multiplied his influence. At the end of the day, my life and your life will ultimately illustrate the futility of resisting God. We will either be an illustration of yes, even though it cost me, or no, because it cost me. Yes or no. But regardless, in the end, an illustration of the futility of resisting God. And here's why. You weren't created for your, for your glory. You were created for God's glory. That is inescapable. In the end, your life will in some way be a reflection of the truth and glory of God. And as John writes, from this day on, the leaders began to plot Jesus' death. They thought they could take his life, but they way overestimated their power and influence. And just a couple of chapters before, Jesus actually addressed this. Here's what he said about taking his life. 
The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. (laughs) There's that authority that kept popping up. I have the authority to lay it down and take it up. (laughs) But here's Caiaphas thinking that he has the authority to take Jesus' life. Kind of like us when we resist God. Like there's anything we can do to exclude the creator of the universe from our plans and have that work out for us. And now Caiaphas has a problem. This would take some finessing. Rome would never agree to execute someone over some petty religious dispute, over a violation of the Jewish law, even if the Jewish law demanded death. Rome ignored that part of the Jewish law, which meant that Caiaphas had to come up with a charge that would give him the opportunity to take Jesus to Rome and say, hey, he hasn't just broken Jewish law, he's broken Roman law. He needed a charge of sedition, which meant that he needed to be able to demonstrate to Pilate that Jesus was a threat to the Roman Empire, that it wasn't just the Jewish peace on the line, but Roman peace too. And since Jesus had and would claim to be a king, that gave him all the ammunition he needed. You know the story. That's exactly what happened. Caiaphas presented Jesus to Pilate with the charge of sedition and had him crucified. The threat was eliminated. The city, secure, peace, at last, for three days. And then the sun rose on the first day of the week after Passover, and there was this commotion outside of Caiaphas' home. He threw open the door to the news that the body of this crucified Jewish rabbi was missing. What? What do you mean missing? And later, there would be reports of Jesus' sightings all around the area. And a few weeks after that, Jesus' closest followers would come out of hiding, boldly walking the streets of Jerusalem saying, you crucified him, God raised him, and we've seen him. Now the crowds were back. Crowds and crowds of people rallying around the name of Jesus, rallying around his reputation and his resurrection. And Caiaphas and his cronies realized too late that he's done more in his dying than he did in his living. Another plan foiled by Jesus. And years and years later, Caiaphas lost his place. And years later, the Jewish people lost their temple. And as we see over and over in the historical record, those who would attempt to stand against and thwart the will of God simply became footnotes in history. Joseph Caiaphas became a footnote in the story of Jesus Josephson. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, there is a little bit of Caiaphas in each one of us. There is a little Caiaphas that says preserve at all costs. 
Preserve your reputation. Preserve that relationship that you shouldn't even be in, but means so much right now. Preserve that sense of control. Preserve your plans for the future. Preserve your position. Preserve your bank account. Whatever it is, whatever is at the center of your life that has actually taken the place of God in your life, there is something in all of us that says preserve and protect at any cost. But if you, if you haven't figured it out yet, don't miss this point. Whatever you have replaced God with in your life, whatever is at the center of your life that isn't God, or for Christ followers, anything other than following Jesus as your Lord, whatever that is, is already diminishing in value and significance. That's already happening, happening whether you know it or not. And here's how I know that's true. Your biggest regrets and my biggest regrets are connected to your attempts to preserve something that isn't even a part of your life anymore. Let that sink in. That thing, that person, that relationship was already losing significance even as you clung tightly to it. Or or as the case with Caiaphas, as was the case with Caiaphas, Uh, The dominoes were already toppling for him. He was already losing significance. He was losing his place every single day. He never knew it until it was gone. And here's why. Little G gods always disappoint. That thing, whatever it is that you place higher than God in your life will always disappoint. The the pressure to preserve that thing will always lead you down a self-destructive path towards self-destructive behavior and self-destructive extremes. That's why your greatest regrets are connected to your attempt to preserve something that you should never have preserved and isn't a part of your life anymore. And that's because God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And to put anything other than God at the center will always set you up for self-destructive behavior that will end up hurting you and those around you. Think about this. Caiaphas was the high priest. As the high priest, he had access to the oldest existing copy of the law of God. The oldest existing copy that said, thou shalt not murder. As the high priest, he was the guardian of the law of God, a steward of truth. And yet, he had an innocent man murdered. Why? Because our capacity for evil is extraordinary when we are trying to preserve something in the place of God. And that's why your biggest regret, my Biggest regret is connected to a season of our life, a weekend of our life, a relationship, a bad decision where we tried to prop something up that should never have been at the center of our life to begin with. Little G gods always disappoint. How many of us wish we could go back and rewrite that one scene from our lives, or for some of us, many scenes? How many of us wish that the person we are now could go back in time to stop the person we were then from doing that thing? Uh, If you are young and listening to this right now, everyone else is rooting for you to make the right decision the first time. We want to save you some pain. Little G gods always disappoint. And they always disappear. You know, it can be terrifying to trust a God you cannot see or control 
It's easy to see why we resist the God we say we trust. Surrender is terrifying. But let's learn a lesson from Caiaphas. While saying yes to God will cost you something, saying no will always cost you more. In fact, saying no will cost you more, including what you put in the place of God in the first place. Saying no will always cost you more. So what have you put in place of God in your life? What's that part of your life where you hold God at arm's length because you need that thing more than you need God? Like what are you seeking to preserve? That thing that keeps wanting more but keeps delivering less. That next piece of your life that you need to surrender. That he's calling you to surrender. Saying yes to God will cost you something. That's for sure. But saying no will cost you more, including that thing. That's the lesson of Caiaphas. Our first bad boy of Easter. Let's pray. As we pray, I just want to give a little bit of space. Here's, here's what I believe. I trust God's work in your life. And I believe that as, um, as I've been speaking, he has been speaking to you. And there is something that he's brought to mind. Something that you need to just decide today to lay down to surrender, to allow him to take his rightful place at the center of your life. Fix that thing in your mind. You might have lots of things. Just pick one. What are you trying to preserve? What are you afraid of? Are you willing to pay the price? Father, give us the courage to surrender. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, 
Please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.